Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today is, well, Alex Venman, uh, former lieutenant uh, colonel, right? <laughs> That's who you will know. Obviously, the first time the world got to meet him was during the 2019 impeachment hearings involving uh, then-President Donald Trump and his infamous perfect phone call to Ukraine. And since then has uh, helped out the uh, U.S. government in the current crisis in Ukraine. Alex, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things when we get back. But first, of course, we have to pay the bills. So stick around. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who is uh, now working, uh, trying to help the U.S. government and the Joint Chiefs in a mess that we call Putin's hmm, chosen war in Ukraine, or at least that's what I've been calling it in the columns. And and Alex, I guess I'll just jump in. Choke on it war. Maybe choke on it war. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I like that one even better. Um, yeah. One of the things that I, I hear uh, when I was on the ground there, and it, it was from um, veterans who said that, uh, and these were even Trumpers, people who love Donald Trump, love the Republicans, for, and they are former military helping train people in Ukraine and helping get people out. Curiously, I asked them uh, how long have they been former uh, members of the military, and some of them had said, you know, a couple weeks. <laughs> but they're, they're on the ground there. And Everyone, and even Republicans I've spoken to, like uh, Robert O'Brien, the former uh, NSC chairman, said everyone is in, in line with what the administration has done so far. But why haven't they instituted full um, sanctions against Russia today? We or yesterday we saw that they turned the notch up, ratcheted it up even one more notch, uh, uh, banning Russian ships from coming into uh, the United States. And why ha haven't we been able to get planes to them? Do those two yeah. issues play? Do you, sure. do you understand those? I do. I do. And I'll say that maybe I'm not I'm not entirely in step with some of the people you spoke to, because frankly, I've been increasingly critical about the fact that we haven't been doing enough or we're moving too slow. You know, I support this administration. Uh, I'm no fan of, of Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, I think I'm you know, shocked. Trump, yeah. Trump's <laughs> capture of the Republican Party uh, kind of helped us stumble into this war. Uh, it's a cold war. Uh, there's a prospect of it being a hot war. If we remember, it, it was Trump's infamous phone call, uh, perfect phone call that was on this issue of weapons to Ukraine that got him impeached in the first place. So it's a continuous thread. You know, Donald Trump was 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 being corrupt, was abusing power, got impeached, but it was on the, the basis of risking U.S. national security uh, and, and supporting kind of like his own interests undermining Ukraine, that, that all, whole, whole thing unfolded. Uh, now that we're in it, you know, and I've been talking about this for months, I talked about what ways we could have done, what we could have done to avoid it. There was a lot of things we should have done. We should have th started thinking about sanctions beforehand, not in response to Russian aggression, but beforehand to warn off Russia. We should have armed Ukraine beforehand also. But that's hindsight, uh, even though, you know, I, I guess I'm on record saying it. The things that we should be doing now include, uh, trying to help nudge um, Europe in particular to be more aggressive with sanctions. 
we've started, we've now gone down the road of blocking a lot more of the Russian economy, blocking Russian assets uh, to, uh, to, to the resources they need to, to continue this war. The, the issue is we're, we don't have that much economic links with Russia. It's Europe that has those economic links and they're the ones that are reluctant to do blocking sanctions on oil and gas trade. You know, they, they're, they're still buying Russian oil and gas, especially Germany. And until Germany do, does something, whether it sanctions them, blocks them entirely, or puts high tariffs, which you know a lot of listeners listeners remember that uh, Trump uh, slapped tariffs on Chinese goods. Right. You know that that reduces Russia's ability to to take all of the money that they're getting and use that as as resources as income to to buy weapons or continue to pay soldiers and stuff like that. That's what we should be encouraging Europe to do. They're mo- moving in that direction, but they're not moving there fast enough. With regards to weapons, I've been even more critical because the U.S. has has played a a pretty significant leadership role on on the sanction side, the economic side, but on the weapon side, we've been very reactive. We've done why you know because um, we thought it was too provocative. We thought it was we don't want to uh, you know. But isn't the invasion of that country provocative? And don't you respond? I mean. To me, yeah. this, this, and, and, you know, cleaned it up for me and explain it to me, but, to, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I have to at this point, because I've, I've had this discussion with a number of people and I go, the invasion of that country was provocative. He's already threatened to use nuclear weapons. Biden has said, there's nothing that we can do that's going to influence him. He goes to the beat of his own drummer. Why not stand up to the bully? Why not say, well, do, right. you, you can't go any farther. This is it. This is a disconnect. I think the, the reason that we find ourselves in this situation where Russia feels emboldened to wage this major war, because this is a major war, largest country yes. in the world, largest country in Europe. The reason it feels emboldened to do this is because we let them slide on too many things. So it's not that we did too much in the past. It's we li- did too little in the past. We haven't learned from that. Right now, the theory has been for a while, it's starting to shift. We're, we're moving in the right direction. The theory has been that if we do too much, it would provoke Russia and draw the U.S. into a war or NATO into a war. That is a false premise. I agree. That was a false premise at the beginning of this war. But think about it from the standpoint of Russia now has had a hell of a time getting its ass kicked, you know, across the battlefields in Ukraine. Why would it then pick a battle, uh, a fight with NATO, where, which is even a much more powerful right. alliance? Of, much more powerful. So it doesn't make that much sense. The other theory is this that if Russia loses too badly, if Ukraine loses too much, it destabilizes Russia. And that means that, you know, Russia could start to fall apart. We don't know if the next guy is worse. It's a, a, another false premise because somehow we think that our providing of weapons is gonna drive the, the, uh, what, the, the outcomes of this disastrous war. Ukraine is gonna drive that. It's not gonna be us or providing some weapons. Right. Ukraine is not gonna give up. And that's and Putin's going to have to live with the consequences. And the last theory, that's again, all these things don't make a lot of sense. But these are the things that are driving the the um, you know and National Security Council sticking. The other, the last piece is if Ukraine is winning too much, then it, there's doesn't there's no reason for them to compromise. If Russia's, you need both sides to feel weak, and that's a false premise again because for Russia that's not the way they think. We just because they're successful in the East doesn't mean they they take what they uh, they have and they go home think about a casino you know people don't take their winnings and they'll double down they'll continue to press their advantage so that's what we're setting ourselves up for uh in if we allow russia breathing room and in, in any uh possibility of of success here in the short term we're setting ourselves up for a protracted war slowly Do you think it will be protracted well so i think there's a there's it's shaping up to, to be that way I think the thing that we could do is we could arm Ukraine with the kinds of weapons that they need to crush the Russian uh, military. What don't they have that they need? Sure. And to crush the Russian uh, military in areas that Russia could no longer sustain a long war. So right now they're getting, you know, their armor, their, you know, their, all their armored personnel carriers are getting destroyed. But Russia still has the planes. It still has the long-range artillery. It still has the ballistic missile and cruise missiles. Right. Ultimately, what we need to do is arm them with drones that could destroy these things on the airfields in occupied Crimea, in uh, across the border, you know, close to to Ukraine. 
we armed them with the, those advanced capabilities, then Russia could no longer prosecute the war. And that's how this thing comes to an end. If we let them, if we give them breathing room and we just give them just enough equipment to destroy the, 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 the ground forces, Russia still has the air forces and all the other stuff to wage war. So why not give them what, the planes? Uh, so again, we're, we're, I think we we're starting to, we're starting to kind of test out the, or push the envelope on this one. The, the theory in the beginning was that providing these old Soviet air jets was going to be too provocative. That's uh, that was wrong. Then it's equally wrong now. But now there's like, you know, political, uh, uh, the, the, the administration doesn't want to be embarrassed about this because they were obstructing it back then. So you, you need to kind of help them ease their way uh, to, this, to this location. And the way you do that is we provided parts. So Russia, uh, Ukraine could kind of bring a lot of their, their uh, planes that were not functional to working order. So that's one thing we're gonna do. I think the next thing is gonna be probably uh, transferring and it's not gonna be the US directly, it's gonna be NATO like all those Eastern Poland. European yeah. yeah Poland Slovakia uh maybe even Bulgaria will transfer their aircraft so we'll give them the planes piecemeal one part at a time <laughs> yeah. well yeah. here's the, right. what really um what strikes me about all of this and you know correct me if I'm wrong but when I look at it it's like all of our actions in the beginning were predicated on a fear that he's going to punch the nuclear button or or chemical and and that we were trying to keep down the carnage that i uh, i understand i i don't agree with the rationale because i don't think that's the way you stand up to a bully and he reminds me a lot of trump you know he, he's gonna bully you and, and see what he can get away with but that aside then the sanctions slowly ratcheting it up i don't understand that either why not cut him to the quick at the beginning did was it the rationale that he'll feel himself choking and he'll stop? Because th that's not been the case. Yeah, I think the, the, the theory on the sanctions in the beginning is you want to have room. You want to be able to show that you're doing something and you want to have room to kind of uh, escalate the sanctions instead of, um, you know, basically cutting them off at the knees and then they can't continue to fight, which would have been just prevents uh, Russia from from having the means to buy stuff to to pay for stuff that would that's the, the there are plenty of people that have been advocating for that but the uh, the the administration settled on this graduated approach we're getting to the same place it just is taken uh, many many months and it, it could have potentially started putting the pressure on early because sanctions are not one of those things that you turn them on and and russia automatically starts to kind of you know uh, uh starve right they, they take weeks and months on the um Everything has been very kind of metered and, and, and gradual instead of uh, what you pointed out, which is how you stand up to a bully, you, how you uh, prevent this war from being protracted. How do you prevent the suffering of thousands and thousands of Ukrainians? That that this graduated approach doesn't help with that. You, right. you, you go in heavy, very heavy at the beginning. Um, and that's, that's, uh, th that's going to be a tragedy of this war is that too many Ukrainians died. And we could have probably been more constructive in the beginning. Now, I sat and and please, you know, I I, I know of your background from Ukraine. I mean, you, you have family there. Yes, still. No, a distant family that we yeah. don't have any contact with. But I sat there in a, in a restaurant in uh, Lviv and saw this was the day after the first bombs dropped right outside of Lviv. And I saw a, a country that I, I, I came to the conclusion by just seeing what I saw that there's no way, no way in hell that uh, Putin will capture or conquer this country. The only thing he can do is level it, but he'll never control it. Does, do you think Absolutely. he, do you think he understands that or that he cares? I don't think he cares. I think uh, you, you were there, um, you know, relatively recently, I think the last time yeah. I was there in August and September and um this is not a population that's going to be pushed around. It's not a, a, a population that has uh, that is going to give up freedoms um, that they've earned. Uh, they believe they've earned over three year, 30 years of independence. They're not going to, um, you know, sacrifice those to to a, a tyrant, um, especially one that really doesn't have the means to, to achieve his aims. So they're not going to negotiate 
away their freedoms. And at this point, uh, there's there's a, a not all uh, unlikely scenario that Ukraine could completely grind uh, down the Russian military and eventually fight their, themselves back to uh, regaining control of uh, you know uh, most of the territory that they've uh, that they lost since 2014. I think Crimea that's a tough one. Um, it, that's a hard fight. Uh, but you know, getting back to even the eastern portions of Ukraine might not be that far-fetched notion. Have you been surprised by the by by I how do I characterize this by the lack of ability of the Russian military tactically and strategically? The way I describe it is that the Russians have disastrously underperformed expectations. On paper, they have a massive military. A high-tech military. They have these, you know, pretty sophisticated warfighting concepts. The fact that they're supposed to use cyber operations, the electronic warfare, the way they're supposed to use precision-guided munitions, like you know these bombing, uh, uh, these aerial bombardments and cruise missile strikes, and they have managed to pull all those pieces together. It's like a bunch of loose parts that are just not a, that don't add, add up to a, a whole. And Ukraine, on the other hand, who what which seems weaker on paper has overperformed. And the, the big difference there is a mismatch in morale. The Russians are reluctant. They don't want to fight. And the Ukrainians are defending their homes. They're defending you know, the high-minded concepts of democracy and freedom, but they're also defending their homes. And they're not going to, to yield. And that is probably going to be one of the decisive factors of when people write about the, the history of this war, they'll see the mismatch, this, this kind of intangible. You know, we, we could count a number of tanks but the intangible of um, of uh, morale, and we'll figure out that that was one of the most decisive factors here is that the Ukrainians were fierce uh, defenders of their homeland. I think that you know a lot of people that I talked to uh, over in Ukraine, and um, a lot of the people that are helping. And look, I, I've said already, I you know this is the largest land war in Europe since World War II. I think this is already World War III. I just don't th- hope it, I hope we limit it in its scope and yeah. we limit it from, you know, like uh, nuclear and, uh, weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. But the whole world is over there. I saw that myself. And yeah. they're helping Ukraine in a variety of of ways. But I I'm I wonder as, as I looked over there and I and I spoke with them, uh, what is it that drives them? when you talk about morale? I, I will. As I said, there are two things that I think stand out. Zelensky saying, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And that that drove a lot of people who are even Trump supporters in the U.S. to go help in Ukraine. They're like, yeah, I, this this is my man, I'm going. And, yeah. and then when uh, Biden said, for God's sakes, this man can't remain in, in, in power. I think yep. that drove, those two statements, I think are the, are the biggest so far of this war and have helped to drive uh, morale in the right direction. Um, yeah. So, so you mentioned there's a there's a bunch there, but let me let me I guess start with in 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 how you you mentioned them. So, on the weapons of mass destruction uh, front, we are in a cold war, yeah. and uh, in fact, there are elements of this war that are not so cold. I mean, there's an economic component to this war that's not cold. There's an informational component that's not cold, um, but. And the, we're, we haven't gotten to a hot war yet on the military front. And Thank the, God. the longer this, war, yeah, the longer this war goes, the the higher the chance of this happening. You know, this kind of this this gain of game of inches where uh, Putin continues to kind of test and probe and look for vulnerabilities. That's how we stumble stumble into something that could bring us into a hot war. You know, he then he he strikes out at the fact that we're providing a, a weapons support to Ukraine. That draws NATO into, into uh, a military confrontation. He uh, strikes a, a nuclear power plant with you know, radio, radiation, uh, radioactive plumes wafting over Europe. That draws uh, NATO in. There are any number of different ways that this could, uh, a cyber attack. There are any number of ways that this happens. A string and, and, missile and that hits Poland. Yeah, so these things are, are a risk. But in terms of um, you know, the possibilities of a nuclear war, weapons of mass destruction, used on nato soil i think that's an impossibly high threshold because you have to remember this is a guy that loves himself he sits like a football field away from his closest uh uh, uh, his closest advisors he's not one to want to get sick let alone you know risk his life (laughs) so 
you but know, he hugged Trump. <laughs> yeah, that's different. Yeah, it's yeah. You know, <laughs> birds of a feather. Yeah, like, go ahead. They they may have swapped some spit. Who knows? Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, uh, I, I hope that's yeah. all they swapped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, it, it, it's an impossibly high threshold because there's a doctrine called mutually assured destruction. Yes. If nobody wins a new nuclear war. We don't win. They don't win, and they know this. So that's not something that they're interested in doing. And we already discussed the conventional side. They're losing. Why would they pick a fight with NATO? So we don't. We shouldn't be overly risk averse about providing Ukraine the support they need. Now, you also mentioned information operations. I, we talked about morale. I think the other key component of this war that's very different than any other wars, uh, you know, the mismatch of morale is huge, but maybe there's even a precedent there. The informational component is very different. This is the most televised war in world history. I agree. It's being captured constantly. And having a masterful kind of, you know, entertainer, leader like Zelensky that could do those kind of, you know, a brilliant one-liners that he believes in. He's not just kind of, he, he that came from like, you know, the heart. That's his, his heart. Um, that is also an, an important component because that's what's been uh, important to sustain Ukrainian morale. The informational component has been important to bring Europe together and the U.S. together around the, this notion of defending democracy. It's the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people and the informational component bringing, people, uh, bringing the rest of the democratic world to work together that have been uh, uh, critical. And then uh, you mentioned another thing that's absolutely essential. You know, we talk about hyperpolarization in the United States. We talk about this, you know, this, this notion that everybody has their camps, but what we don't have different camps about is about Ukraine. I mean, we have like fringe MAGA uh, that, that'll follow <laughs> Carlson anywhere yeah. or Trump anywhere. But in general, people understand who the Ukrainian people are and what they're fighting for. They're fighting for their homes. They're fighting for freedoms. They don't have to wonder what, what like, you know, what democracy or fight for democracy is. They look at, they get to flip to on their TV and see what yeah. this is about. And that's brought America together. Uh, that's brought American soldiers, um, I think it's brought the world together against. That's brought the world together. Exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we we have uh, Biden leading. Um, you know, I, I, I could come across as, as a bit critical because I think we could be doing more. But President Biden has been leading. He calls things what they are. He calls him a war criminal. He calls this 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 war a genocide. Uh, and, it he, is. you know, the right things to say. Yeah, exactly. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about a couple of things that you opened up here, the uh, the, the uh, media aspect of this war, mutually assured destruction, and a Zoom press conference that I was in on. So stick around, folks. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with me today, of course, is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who's spent a lot of time these days talking about Ukraine. And by gosh, we're doing it again. Uh, before the break, Alex, you were, you were talking about mutually assured destruction. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I have been in the White House press briefing room. I actually had a, a, a reporter come up to me, a young reporter, we said, you know, Brian, I don't, I don't think we could win a, a nuclear war with Russia. And I said, uh, no shit. <laughs> I said, nobody wins a, a nuclear war. It's called mutually assured destruction. We, you know, mad. It's been the guiding principle of, of uh, nuclear war since at least the 50s. So, you know, when, when we both, uh, the Soviet Union and the United States started building up such, you know, large numbers. I, I said, how can you not be aware of that? 
And then I started talking to some of the other younger reporters. And I've come to, to find that there are people who really don't even understand the concept of what a nuclear yeah. war would be. Or, you know, for example, nuclear winter, as Carl Sagan described it, and, and how it would be devastating, you know, for the entire world. I'm, I'm asking you, <laughs> the people in the military still get it, right? Uh, not necessarily. It's not something we, we live in a post-Cold War world. And uh, in that post-Cold War world, we don't think about nuclear war. Um, we think about, you know. Uh, well, that's sobering. Simply. Well, it, it's, you know, there are plenty of people that the strategists might think about this stuff. Folks that cover Russia and China might think about these things, uh, planners. But it's not a, a we, we don't have like we did in the Cold War, like nuclear artillery and stuff like that. These are strategic level assets. So it's not really well understood. And, you know, the, the concept of there's a famous line that, you know, gets repeated pretty often. It was uh, it was a, a uh, Reagan line. A nuclear war uh, um, can never be won. It must never thus must never be fought. And it, we actually just signed a document with the Russians in January kind of reinforcing this notion. So, you know, the, the right people do understand that a nuclear war is not is not a place to go. It's a place to 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 preserve the capability to warn off your adversary but it's not something that the, the russians are interested in doing their doctrine says nuclear war weapons to be used in case of existential threat to the nation that's not losing a bunch of planes that's not losing a battle in in ukraine it's an existential threat to the nation that means your you know your capital is about to fall or something like that that is a, a pretty darn high bar and we're not threatening uh, you know there's no existential threat from from the us or nato to um to you uh, to Russia. So I think that's a very, very high bar and that should provide your audience some security that we're, we're far from a nuclear war at this point. You know, I, I fear that we could stumble into something down the road months and years if, if this war goes on that long with this kind of gain of inches and stuff like that. But we're far from it now. Uh, and I think we're far from Russia even using nuclear weapons against Ukraine because they understand that's a game changer. And we have this you know, there's the, the fancy word for it is strategic ambiguity. Basically, what it amounts to is that Biden said, if you if you use weapons of mass destruction, new chemical or nuclear, that's a game changer. That's going to change. He didn't say a red line. He didn't say what he's going to do. But he said that it's going to give it be a game changer. The Russians then have to wonder what that means. Does that mean the NATO gets involved? They have no interest in doing that. So I think that also kind of warns off even a, a, a nuclear weapon use in, in, in Ukraine. What do you, what you, you've talked with the Joint Chiefs, yes. You've talked with other in the military. What do, how do they, what's the end game? What do they see as the end game in Ukraine? I haven't talked to them about this particular scenario. I've talked to, to plenty of other uh, senior folks. Um, well, that begs, what have you talked to them about? Let's go there first. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah, have well, you spoken yeah. to them so, about? So let me, let me say that, look, um, there's not the same kind of mystery about like the White House and the Pentagon that people that having served in government have. I know who these people are. I know how they think. Uh, I've kind of interacted with them. So there's no mystery like that. Somehow they, they, they have access to uh, intelligence that I don't have at the, at the moment. But that doesn't change the fact that I have years of experience uh, under my belt working these issues and access to everything that there was under the sun in terms of intelligence when I was in office. And to me, I don't think they have a very good grasp of, um, uh, I mean, I find that the Pentagon is, is a couple of weeks behind in its assessment of what's going on, on the ground. You know, I remember being deeply frustrated the first four weeks of the war when they were saying like, you know, Russia has the vast majority of its forces intact, like 90% still combat effective. And I was looking at the numbers, you know, looking, watching those, all the Russian and Ukrainian speaking language, all the open source intelligence cataloging all the weapons lost and stuff like that and they were they were taking massive massive casualties the russians have lost twenty thousand troops we lost a, a tiny fraction of that in 20 years of war in the middle right. east the russians in a much bigger war in afghanistan the soviet union twice the size of, of the russian federation lost the population of 320 million they lost fifteen thousand people in 10 years of war they've lost twenty thousand people 
in the more than 20,000 people within six those weeks. are casualties those are not deaths correct no so those are those are deaths those are deaths casualties, casualties so, multiply that by two yeah that's uh, well or sometimes yeah. three um, yeah that's two uh, or three i'm being i'm being conservative yeah that's very uh, conservative well yeah, that it's it is enormous yeah i well when we were there there was and this this i know because i interviewed the two or three women who did it there were uh russian soldiers trying to 18 19 year old kids trying to hook up with uh local women on tender and they lured them into a an uh a, a small area and then doused them with molotov cocktails killing all six of them i mean it's, these are salty people man i'm telling you they're not going gentle into that good night I, i'm not yeah. surprised at the number of casualties and i wasn't surprised that we were behind that but uh behind you know th those numbers but i was surprised with how well american intelligence worked in the beginning they yes. were they knew everything russia was going to do before russia announced they were doing it that's true to, i mean there was a whole uh, uh kind of a trade craft around this the notion that you could uh you could expose russia's uh actions and de de deter them, prevent them from taking those actions. But at the same time, this is the same, you know, defense uh, and intelligence establishment that said that Ukraine was going to fall in, you know, two three days. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. That, that's the same kind of, uh, and that's the thinking that prevented us from arming Ukraine. Because why would we arm Ukraine if they're going to lose it in two to three days? We just lose our weapons and we increase the risk. So if we were a little bit more sophisticated in our assessments, we would rec recognize early on, and I've written about this, is that this was going to be a protracted war and that we would have started arming Ukraine for a protracted war. I think uh, I think the, the, the Defense Department is, is coming around. Well, I think what you just said outlines the fact that we probably had a snitch in the Kremlin and we didn't have as good intelligence in Ukraine or well, didn't listen to yeah. it. Yeah, well, so, so I would put it this way. There's, it's easy to look at the charts on, uh, uh, you know, of weapons and make make some predictions off that. There are not that many people that served. I, th I served three years in Moscow. Uh, there are not that many people that served in Moscow and Ukraine. Uh, I served in both those places, and uh, it kind of skews the perceptions if you just look at kind of ster <coughs> sterile charts. Yeah, so, um, I would say that uh, you know that the, we're 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 moving in the right direction. Uh, that's that's always a good thing. You want to encourage movement in the right direction. I think now there, there's a, a recognition of the fact that this is a protracted war, but there's also needs to be a change in the what what that the, uh, kind of like. So what does that mean? That should yeah. mean that we should start arming Ukraine for protracted war. We should start training them on advanced planes, and not just the Soviet era MiGs, but maybe even we should start thinking about training them for Western aircraft. We should start training them for Western artillery. All these types of things. That's what we. Oh, they are already there training them on some of that i've seen that some myself yeah but, some of it yeah yeah but not the planes and that's the thing that you know we can't put uh we can't you know they call it a no-fly zone i call it an air cap but because yeah. no fly zone implies that you have air supremacy and i don't think they can get air supremacy or even air superiority but they can hmm. be competitive and, yes. and combative and they can take out russian planes um, but you can't do it with American fighters. That's that would be that is a little aggressive. You can't. I mean, I look. I you this could, is one, but yeah, this is the one I take some. You know, it, it requires a little bit of nuance. It's not. It's not, frankly, as provocative as it sounds because we always think about our side and that we would have to go at, go in there and destroy the Russian airplanes, destroy the Russian air defense. But <laughs> frankly, we could assume a tiny bit of risk and then put the onus <clears> on the Russian. So the Russians then have to go ahead and fight the big boys. The Russians yeah. have to go ahead and knock out our planes. And if they know that we will always defend ourselves, that the right to self-defense is ironclad. We, we killed hundreds of Russian soldiers in Syria to, to prove that. And we could just fly in there and, and kind of say, warn them, go ahead and do something, see what happens to you. Well, that and, or, and couldn't we also, uh, I mean, talk about nuance. How about this? Uh, volunteers. Well, there's that's a whole different other uh, other question. Yes, there's some there's some good conversations to be had about volunteers. Oh, there's a, are, there's a volunteer a legion. Why isn't there a volunteer air corps? Exactly. 
Yeah. And, and there are volunteers that are, that I saw in Poland who are ready to fly if they could just get an airplane. Yep. So I think that, you know, the other thing to recognize is that just because there are there, even if there is an air duel or if there's a, uh, you know, if the U S has defends itself, Russia has the kind of audacity and the, 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 the stupidity to attack U S airplanes in a no-fly zone. Again, I'm not advocating for it. I'm advocating for giving Ukraine the weapons, but we should we should also understand how high the bar is for confrontation. Even if the U.S. were to to do that, that doesn't necessarily mean World War III. Why does it have to expand to, to a full-scale war? It could be a limited exchange. The Russians get punched in the nose, and uh, then they then that's where it ends, and then they don't have to. But they don't, what, they have to Putin's this. pride wouldn't allow that to happen right? That's true, but he also doesn't have the military means to do anything about it. What is he going to do? Uh, 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 elevate to nuclear war? Nope. Existential threat. M mutually assured destruction. There are all sorts of different kind of action-reaction uh, 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 ways that you could look at this that indicate that this, th this does not have to be as provocative as automatically jumping to World War III and, and nuclear Armageddon. And what, is, what do the Joint Chiefs think? Um, I would say that... Um, this is an interesting one. I would say that the um, indications are the indications are that um, it's too it's perceived as too risky to do that. Either a no fly zone, uh, and I, I, you know, look, I, I guess I, I operated at the at, in in the White House at, at a at a very senior level, um, and kind of have a, a, a unique to a certain extent insight into uh, what war with Russia is about. I wrote the kind of the, wrote the strategy for it. Right. Um, and these are very, very, very capable, skilled people in the White House, but they're not specialists in this area. So they have to kind of take all of these other factors and, and try to assimilate them and determine, make some conclusions. I, I think their conclusions are, are frankly uh, are, um, are wrong. They're, they see too much risk where it doesn't exist. And I think we, that doesn't mean that we have to be extremely provocative. We just need to be thoughtful. We need to understand what the parameters of these decisions are, what's likely to result in, in escalation, what's likely to, to not result in any uh, um, kind of real Russian response. And I think we're, we're starting to feel that out a little bit, but through trial and error. That's why you see us providing, you know, right. like little bits of equipment here and there. We're seeing that, you know, through trial and error that actually these things are not that risky. There's a rule to the game of proxy warfare. We did it in, in Korea where the Russians were flying. The Russians were flying Korean marked jets. Uh, you know, the Russians were manning the air defense systems that knocked out like John McCain and stuff like that and countless other pilots. We've done this before. We've armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. There, there are rules to this game and the Russians are, 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 are also understand these rules. They're not as risky as, um, you know, some people might lead, lead you. To well, I think they're just trying to intimidate us into not participating so they can have their way with exactly Ukraine. Right. That's, that's, that's what it exactly. seems like to me. And yes. we've been a little reticent to challenge them and because we've just gone through four years of Trump. So, so the other two questions, I, uh, I'll go with you. Let's go to Trump. How mm. much of what Trump did led to where we are now? Okay. Uh, remember that little impeachment thing? Uh, yes, I remember it well. I covered it. Yeah. I think you were in the White House a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was about javelins to Ukraine. That was about weapons to Ukraine. Yeah. I think people just need to remember that this was what uh, Trump's corruption undermined support to Ukraine, undermined weapons to Ukraine, undermined the kind of the- Undermined the, NATO. Undermined NATO. And so there is a direct connection of Trump to, to this war. He, yes. And all I hear from Trumpers today is Biden is the reason this war never occurred under Trump's watch, only under Biden's. It's his fault. Do you, know you why? tell them? Do you know why? It's because the, he was uh, Putin had his fingers crossed for a second Trump term. Oh, yeah. John Bolton uh, says this probably better than anybody else. If Trump had a second term, he would have pulled the U.S. out of NATO, and then it would have been a cakewalk for, for uh, Vladimir Putin to go in and go into Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainians would put up a fight, but then they wouldn't have to contend with like the rest of the democratic world consolidating with sanctions, put, uh, arming Ukraine. That's the, the kind of situation that uh, we would have had. 
it, we would have basically seen the U.S. complicit in undermining all of the the, the kind of the benefits that our uh, parents and grandparents enjoyed from the blood spilled in World War II. All of that would have been undone in a second Trump administration. Well, and Alex, I'm going to challenge you and say that I think that you're wrong. And here's what I think would have happened. I think okay. we would have had boots on the ground in Ukraine, but siding with Russia. <laughs> that's worse than that's worse than, than what I say. Yeah, it is. But I, I, I could see that. I could see Trump selling that. I yeah, could see Trump. Yeah, I mean, after what he did in Ukraine under his first watch. Yeah. It, but, you know, look, it's, it's important, Brian, to remember that, you know, it wasn't just what he did in 2019. Uh, he also... The President Trump launched an insurrection against the uh, the United States to overturn an election. To Vladimir Putin, who's really like could sniff out vulnerabilities, this seemed yep. like a huge vulnerability. The U.S. was distracted, hype, a, a, a polarized. The U.S. wouldn't take any action. The U.S. Uh, Trump weakened NATO, so this was an opportunity to strike out without having to fear kind of a, a NATO response. But even if you go past his his tenure in office. He was still cheerleading for cheerleading for Putin. He still he is. Still, he still is. He's cheerleading for him. He's talking about how brilliant he is. And for for somebody like Putin, what does that mean? It means that Putin, who's captured the Republican Party, I mean Trump, who's captured the Republican Party. No, I think you had it right the first time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll just clear. We'll just make sure it, it, it's clear. You know, Trump tr Trump owns the Republican Party. He's he's basically you know. They're too fearful to respond to him. Trump would warn off, the, the, in Putin's view, Trump would warn off the Republicans for, from imposing costs. That's the way that, that uh, Putin viewed the situation. If you have a party that's constantly cheerleading for you, there, as many Republicans have as, as Tucker Carlson had, why would you think that somehow they would pivot 180 degrees and then go side with Ukraine? It didn't, that, that didn't make sense. But of course, our, our Republican... Um, you know, fellow Americans that are in office are political animals, so they could pivot 180 degrees uh, and, uh, you know, just turn around, and say something exactly opposite of what they were just saying. Well, yeah, I've never met a Republican that couldn't do that. But <laughs> let's um, the other uh, question I want to talk about was uh, something that you mentioned in the first segment about uh, uh, the information. It's, you know, the first televised war was Vietnam. The first cable news war was the first yeah. Gulf War, which I covered in what, 1990, whatever it was, uh, one and two. This is the first social media war. I mean, I, I have looked at the attempts that Putin, Trump and others have tried to do with uh, the dissemination of disinformation and propaganda. And quite frankly, what they've done is old school. It would have worked in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. But it can't work today because someone is sitting there with one of these, a cell phone, yep. and, and shooting video. And that's where Zelensky was, has, has really, really risen to the challenge. And as I said, I sat in a Zoom uh, press conference with the mayor of Kiev and mayors from all over the world. This is Zoom. This is social media. And I, I saw the mayor of Dublin in tears, you know, as the mayor of Kiev is going, look, we're only trying to defend the democratic values that you all say you support. And the, and the guy from Dublin was in tears saying, you're my brother. We're going to send you whatever help we can. Yep. So I, I look at it when you talk about information, I want to drill down on that. I think it's, this is they call it. I, I've heard people say it's a TikTok war. It is the first social media war. And I think it's displacing the old methods of propaganda. I think you're the first one to, to, to uh, I've heard couch it as a social media war, which is, which is pretty astute. Um, first of all, let me say Vitaly Klitschko is, is, is you know, he's, he's a pretty, pretty he's, he's, he's pretty amazing. He's a big dude. He's a badass. Uh, he's a badass. <laughs> uh, him and, and his brother. Yeah, uh, I love them both. Yeah, world heavyweight champion that's now the mayor of Kiev. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, you know, and then on the Dublin thing, the mayor of Dublin, it's interesting. I was watching the, uh, uh, a uh, Irish parliamentarian in the, um, you know, um, European parliament like denounced the fact that there was support coming to 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 Ukraine, and it was a really frightening thing to see, like how out of touch somebody like that uh, um, that's 
the representing their country in, in parliament, in European parliament, is talking about that that only protracts war. Like, what are you supposed to do? Kind of bend you know, over and take it? I was, I didn't want to say that. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I didn't want to say that, but you got it. Yeah, uh, I, I knew where you were going. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a frightening thing to do. Like it's, that's the, the quintessential appeasement, but um, this is a very unique social media, um, social, yeah, social media war where basically you don't have to guess what's going on. People no. have phones. People are, are basically uh, putting on, on TV, on the internet, everything that is going on live. And Russia can't, can't do anything about that. Russia, no. I mean, volume of people that are seeing this is, is um, enormous compared to their legacy abil ability to kind of spin a lie and then you know, show a kind of single false picture still as opposed to like you know videos of what's going on and I, I think that's right i think that's um that's going to be a lesson for 21st century warfare yeah what frightens me is that an autocrat who understands social media and doesn't stifle it but uses it that's yeah. that's the fear i have going forward into into another war if we survive i and i always say that the next 30 to 60 days will determine the future of, of mankind, maybe indefinitely, but at least for the rest of this century. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, like, you know, I think it's a bit of an oxymoron to think of a, of a tyrant or authoritarian that's very good at social media, because social media implies some sort of freedom uh, of, of expression. I mean, I think that the, the, the Chinese have, have access to lots of social media, but the, their, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't understand how that works. They can understand how to censor it how to maybe swat down some messages. That's about it. You know, the best they have is like Kim Jong-un, you know, with his like phallus massive missile, you know, coming in. Have you seen that clip where he's like yeah. walking out? And it's massive I've missile. got a big dick. <laughs> yeah. It's, except it's coming in behind him for some reason. Yeah. You know, that's, but that's, yeah. So, so, so something like that. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting. I think uh, it's, a, it's a strength of democracy in open societies that, um, which is why I think that's win. another reason I don't think Putin can can win. No, I don't think he can defeat because of all the pictures and all the uh, stuff that we've seen that has nothing to do with uh, official lines of communication, has yep. nothing to do with mainstream media, has nothing to do with corporate media, but it's people. And yep. that reaches people more than anything else. Absolutely. I think that's right. And I think... Um, you know, it's interesting. We talk about Russia, a uh, powerful um, employer of kind of inf disinformation and stuff like that, but they're on their heels here uh, and out of their league. Uh, and I don't think they're going to be able to do anything to to dig themselves out of this hole with regards to And do to you this. think Putin's out of his league? Um, he doesn't think he's out of his league, but I know I what think, he thinks. <laughs> I think in terms of, uh, you know, in t at times it feels like Zelensky's kind of toying with him. Um, you know, Zelensky would would meet with him and attempt to negotiate because he doesn't he he cares about his people. He wants to end the su the suffering for him. Um, and Putin is still living in a world that's fundamentally changed over the course of eight weeks. It is no no longer a war a world that's uh, open to the Russian message in a lot of ways. No longer open to you know Putin's brand of of a managed democracy. And he's going to he I think it's going to be impossible for him to. Um, you know, to, to uh, reorient. He just, is, he's been in power for 22 years. He's been in power too long. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't think he's gonna be able to adapt. We're gonna take another short break. And when we come back, I've got a couple of questions we'll close with. Alex, thanks for being with us. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at JATQ Podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question, and I am your host, Brian Karam, for the last 45 minutes. Fascinating discussion with uh, Alex Vimman, former Army Lieutenant Colonel and now uh, assisting the current administration, or at least providing them keen insight into, into Ukraine. And, and Alex, I really do appre appreciate you being your fascinating conversation. Um, I, I'd like to maybe 
drill down on a couple of things we, we touched on earlier, but it, one of them is the end game. But the first thing I want to ask is the rumors that have persisted since the beginning that there's a problem. The reason why Putin chose this war is that he's physically or mentally ill. I have heard rumors of a, a TIA, a cardiac uh, incident, uh, cancer, uh, STDs, diabetes, hangnails, you name it. And I've heard the rumors about, about uh, Putin being on his last legs and he wants to go out with a bang. Does yep. any of that ring true? You know, um, I've heard those same rumors for a decade. Yeah. I remember serving in, in Moscow and like him being unavailable for a little a, a bit of time and people speculating on like, you know, back trauma that he couldn't, he was basically paralyzed. I think the fact is until there's something substantive, um, I, I won't necessarily believe it, but I, and I think it was, it's his desire for a legacy is bigger than, you know, probably a sh some short-term illness that he's out of power. He's going to be out of power quickly. He's just thinking about his legacy over the course of his entire tenure. Uh, he's been in power for 22 years. He thought he was going to be in power for a total of 36 years, all the way to, up to 2036. And that he wanted to secure Ukraine. He thought it was going to be easy before his next election in 2024. Just have it in the bag. It would be done with and a fait accompli. So I think there was a long-term uh, effort to build a legacy that was completely rational, not irrational, not that he wanted to do a quick grab. He just saw a couple of different elements. He saw Trump uh, still muck, uh, uh, muckraking and kind of just, you know, dividing the U.S. and making the U.S. weak um, or kind of offering the perception that the U.S. is weak, um, you know, including bringing his Republican Party along. He saw what he thought was vulnerabilities with, um, with NATO. And he saw a Russia, uh, Ukraine that was continuously slipping through his fingers. Right. And the longer he waited, the harder it was going to get. And you, you've been, you, you've seen it on the ground. I mean, that's a population, that's a, it's a completely different population. Yeah. <laughs> slipping through his fingers. So I think uh, he was just lo looking to act now. And based on this notion that we always looked the other way, that we didn't really impose significant costs on him for all these transgressions over the years, this is the way to get, to get what he needed done. Uh, it, it was, it's, it, to me, it, it all completely was logical, although f uh, his fundamental assumptions about the West, about NATO, about Ukraine were just completely off. Does he think he's winning? I don't think he's winning. Um, Does I don't he think, think he's, he's winning? I, I don't, I don't think he thinks he's winning. I think he's trying to pull a, a, a pull a kind of a hat trick um, and try to salvage something um, and maybe live to fight another day because he needs to deliver something. You know, the consequences of this war uh, for for the, his economy are going to be uh, tragic and catastrophic. Uh, the losses- For years to uh, come. For years to come. Losses for his military are enormous and he needs to do something. So he's really focusing uh, everything he's got on this Eastern campaign and not being very successful at it. That's why he announced this or this kind of, uh, this you know, victory in Mariupol. He didn't achieve victory. There's still, uh, there's still, you know, a thousand fighters there, but he called it a victory so he could draw forces off there and push him to the North towards, to, to affect the, the Donbass. And I think ultimately- He won't take Mariupol. I, it doesn't, I, I mean, I was worried about it. I'm not worried about it anymore. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, that's a distant target now. I think what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to achieve some successes uh, you know, hold some ground, claim some victories, and then uh, throw a parade for his military. That's what he's looking to do. All right. That leads me to a couple other questions. One, do you think that he will be removed from power? Uh, that's hard to see right now. I don't think um, I've been pretty good about calling him. Uh, that is, that's a hard one to, to see because he's really ratcheted up uh, uh, lots of tools to suppress the population. He has good control over kind of the, the military, the uh, security apparatus, um, and the conditions aren't ripe for to be overthrown either by a palace coup or by large large scale uh, uh, protests. Months from now, the longer this war goes, the more dangerous it is uh, for him, for him. domestically, right? Because yeah. that's you know the the the, the bloodletting in the Russian army as well as the sanctions 
that's going to put a lot of pressure. So I think he does uh, need, need to see if he could get a, a quick victory and then uh, lick his wounds and then maybe fight another day, which might be m- months down the road if he's successful. I, I don't think this is going to be right now. It's still not shaping up to be a short, short campaign. Yeah. Uh, is, is any truth to them using uh, mobile crematoriums to dispose of Russian soldiers that have been killed? I, I think, unfortunately, uh, it's probably Russian soldiers and it's probably civilians. Yeah, yeah, that's that was my bigger fear. So that leads me to the big question, and we've touched on it a couple of times. What do you and you haven't talked? You told me you haven't talked to the Joint Chiefs about this, but what do you see as the end game? Yeah. You know, it's uh, my I I try to uh, to connect with the White House relatively, um, you know, as much as I can, frankly. Uh, they're the decision makers, not the not the joint. The, yeah, the joint chief, the joint chiefs are the implementers. Um, and you kind of figure this out once you once you leave the 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 bosom of the army and you go uh, see what what else is out there. The White House is kind of the belly button for for all this stuff. Um, the end game. Right now, it's starting to shape up with a. Um, victory but maybe not a decisive victory for ukraine ukraine is looking looking like it's going to win in the east but russia is still uh going to have the air power the rockets to continue to punish ukraine and that's this a recipe for a long war so what what i would like to see is ukraine getting more more planes more unmanned combat aerial vehicles and being able to destroy uh, the, the parts of the russian military that allow them to sustain a long war that's the way we prevent this from becoming a long war. Right now, it's unfortunately, it's, it, we're moving too slow. We're too reluctant. We're too reactive. So it's still trending towards a longer scenario. For a war that's already lasted eight, eight years, and this, this current like, major, major offensive uh, has only been two months. Um, if Russia, if Ukraine were to get the weapons it needs, this does not have to be a long war. Do you think they will? Um, I think they're going to get... I think they're eventually going to get um, more weapons. Uh, the problem is that it's going to be a higher toll for the civilian population in Ukraine. And it might be at a point where Russia is less apt to lick its wounds and go home. So imagine a scenario. This is, the, this is almost the worst case scenario. Imagine a scenario where Russia is successful in the East, gains more territory, and then kind of starts to rebuild for larger offensives, going back to Kiev. And that's when we decide to give them more advanced weapons. But at that point, Russia's already had some successes. It's going to start build, rebuilding its military. It's going to call for conscripts, draftees. Uh, that's that's not, not a recipe for a short war. If Russia is defeated probably in the next several weeks, months on the battlefield, and it's taking losses on in its air power and its artillery and, and, its, and its long-range missiles, that's a recipe for a shorter war. Makes sense. Share a couple of stories with you. One, when you were testifying during the impeachment trial, I asked the question of then President Trump, who responded uh, to me, did you talk to Vemin? Is that where you came up with that question? Because that sounds like a Vemin. Did he really <laughs> say met. that? We hadn't even met. <laughs> That's funny. What was the question? You know, God, I'll have to look back and see. <laughs> I just remember the response. It was about uh, your testimony and um but i can't remember the specifics i have to go back and look at it but and then i got pulled into um uh not into the oval but up uh, into upper press where his press secretary was convinced that i was in cahoots with you and the democrats to bring down donald trump by asking that question i i'm just an now asshole and will ask anything to anybody so that's yeah. <laughs> now i definitely want to know what that question yeah is, I, i'll dig it up <laughs> The other one was, and here's where I, I, I look at, you know, when I was on the ground in, in Ukraine and you see all these posters, you know, that are in Ukrainian and in Russian, and it said, uh, this is our ground, we live on it, you'll be beneath it, you know, and then the, flipping off Russia. And then, I mean, some of the things that they put on their posters are hilarious. Yeah. But you, there was one moment, and, and I and I love that, that, that verve and that empathy and that, that, spirit and i think that's what isn't uh you know i i remember going i was in very rural 
southern um, uh, Ukraine and where they're still using, you know, like horse and buggies uh, with, you know, uh, it, it, to bring they don't even heat their they have no electricity and they're heating their homes with firewood. You know, I mean, these are very rural, very uh, humble people. And, you know, I remember talking to one guy and he, he was like, you know, fuck Putin. Yeah. <laughs> they, you can't conquer us. Yeah. Then I there was one day I walked into the New Hope Mission in Lviv and we were talking with people and there was a little three year old boy that was almost in tears. And so I went over to him and you know, I, I don't know. I, I know enough in Ukrainian to get shot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, <laughs> I started playing peekaboo with him and he started smiling. And he started grinning. He was there with his mother and his grandmother. They had come from Mariupol. They lived in the apartments across the street from a theater that had been clearly marked children and had been bombed. Yeah. They were living in a communal bomb shelter for two or three days. And then um, they would come out during the day and risk their lives to bury their friends who were killed in their friend's front yard so they could be identified later. The father had stayed behind to fight the mother and the grandmother and the young boy, the three-year-old child were sitting penniless. I gave him, you know, Jesus, I'm, I'm opening up my wallet and giving him whatever I can give him um, to try and help him. And then as I played peekaboo peek with him, he was smiling for a few moments. And then he, he looked at his mother and he had this real worried look on his face. And he looked at her and he said something. And I asked his mother, I said, what, what did he say? His name was Benjamin. And she said, he looked at me and said, I'm having fun, mom. Does that mean they're going to start dropping the bombs again? And I, 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 I was in tears and my producer was in tears and everyone was in tears. And I, to, to equate a moment of joy with the worst thing that can happen, this to me can, if they were to win today, how long will it take for these scars to heal? Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one. I, I mean, that story, uh, you don't have a soul if, if it doesn't touch you. Um, I don't, I think these, I don't know if these, these um, wounds heal entirely, but they turn into scar tissue and that makes the population even that much stronger. I think a lot, in a lot of ways, you know, think about our greatest generation coming back from world war II and rebuilding, uh, you know, they didn't, rebuilding their lives. They didn't have to rebuild the country, but rebuilding their lives after years of war. I think the Ukrainians are going to come back uh, as a fierce world leader. They've captured uh, the, 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 the soul of, of, uh, of, of the, uh, democracy. And um, I hope, you know, we, we don't just remember them for the fact that they saved uh, democracy for us all. We could have lived in a world where, you know, the Russia's, China's, North Korea's were, were prepared to prey on the weak uh, and we'd find ourselves beleaguered on all sides as our allies are attacked. But we, we should also remember them uh, um, on, on the back end. And uh, it's they're uh, wonderful people, um, very capable people, some of the best like tech startups, some of the best soil in the world, uh, the breadbasket of, of the world. And um, we should all be there to help them now and help them rebuild and come back you know as as the as the tiger of, of of europe i think you said something that's very true i think their um i think their profile in the international world will will rise and russia's is going to suffer no. immensely yeah. well listen I, I appreciate you being here uh alex is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to hit on no i think you you got you got me with that last story and uh no, I think we covered it all. Thanks. Yeah, it, it, that one got me too. I, every time I think of it in that little kid's face, it, you know, it, it just brings me to tears. And I felt so bad for that family. And, you know, they had they had traveled for four days from Mariupol to try and get to someplace safe. And they hadn't heard from the father. They didn't know if he was safe. They didn't know what he was doing. But he had he had actually gotten them out of that out of Mariupol so he could fight. Anyway, the, the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. Alex, I hope you'll join us again sometime. It was very fascinating. Yeah, good conversation. Thanks, Brian. All righty. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, 
Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast.